0: Morning, Crosspoint. We're we're uh, getting some new systems in work today. Uh, as you can tell, we're we're now here in this fitnessium, and it feels good, doesn't it? Uh, a lot of work has been put into this week, and it's this guy right here. He's worked really hard. Um, so thank you, Josiah. Uh, and, and not only him. Yesterday, there was a team of of guys and gals that came in, and we had kids here, and we were all setting it up. And um, you know, really, the the hope is in. In this transition, is that we, we we make it more accommodating for our church today, but also it, it just seems to flow really well. You come in and everything's right within this section here of the lobby, and uh, it, it just feels really good to welcome guests in and have kids ministry and everything really close by. And so, uh, so we're, we're we're excited about this transition, and um, we look forward to filling this room up really quick and allowing God to grow us. And so, uh, we invite you. You into being a part of that. Whether this is your first time uh, being here today, or you've been here with us for quite some time, we want to say thank you for being here today. And we are also starting a new uh, series in the Book of Hebrews, and the title of this is "Jesus is Greater." That's the theme of the Book of Hebrews. Jesus is greater, and for us as a church, I think it's really important. As we study the book of Bible, and even today, maybe you're going to begin this study with us in our community groups here on Sunday mornings and personally, but to to come under the word of God and say, how do we study then the book of Hebrews? How are we to be a people that study the word of God? Not study like students in a classroom, but study as though our lives depend on it. And so I, I want to give us a picture of what that looks like Number one, we are not to study like cold scholars. We're not to study the Bible or any of the books of the Bible like cold scholars sitting up in an ivory tower wanting to fill our heads with knowledge. But we study in such a way that it affects our hearts. Because the Bible doesn't just give us facts for Bible trivia games. The Bible is what changes our hearts from the inside out. And so we're not to study the Bible just to, to fill us with more information, but to seek God's transformation. Number two, we're, we're not to study the Bible like casual admirers. We don't stand at a distance looking and, and, and think that, that somehow this doesn't matter for me. And, and We're not biblical hobbyists. The Bible isn't supposed to sit in a museum untouched. But we study the Bible... So that it applies to our lives. We get in these pages and we allow the Word of God to be massaged into our lives. So that way we we actively participate in God's plan through the will of God by trusting and walking in His Word. And so we're not to study the Bible like casual admirers or cold scholars, but we are to study the Bible like committed soldiers. Committed soldiers want to do the will of their commander and king. Committed soldiers realize that they have the word of God, whether they're in furlough or in the thick of war, and we believe that the book of Hebrews is a friend for the battle. And so I pray, church, that the book of Hebrews for us is a friend, is a loyal and trustworthy friend, and we are the committed soldiers that God has called to be committed to King Jesus. And so church, my prayer is, is that this book, no matter how familiar with it you might be today, is something that we all grow in familiarity with and we allow it to change our lives. And we watch God change the lives of others through us. So let's pray for that. Father, we ask God that you would help us walk as a people committed to your word, committed soldiers for your truth. That God, we know that your word is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, piercing joint and marrow. God, we, we come under the word so that you would have your way right now in our lives. In Jesus' name, the church says, amen. Have you ever lost focus in life before? You ever lost focus of what matters? Maybe you've had these times in your life where you've been so scattered and doing so many things that you really realize that you've lost focus of what ultimately counts and what matters and you have to rearrange your life in order to make what matters most matter most. It was just last week we went to our kids open house at school and we want to be very involved parents in our children's education. And so we go to the events. Uh, we're big fans of our kids' school and their teachers and all that they do to support the education of our children. And so when we went to the open house, I noticed when we went visited my son's classroom that his desk and his table was in a different place than when we went to meet the teachers. So meet the teachers is actually before school started. And his table with the, the, his classmates is in the back left corner. And so when we went to open house, which is a, a good month after school started, his table was actually like front and center. So if you're a parent and you see that your kids move from the back left corner to front and center, one of two things is likely to have happened to bring him there. Number one, he's either one of the troublemakers in the class, and so maybe he's the troublemaker in the class, and so we have to have a conversation. I wouldn't thank that for Camden. He's such a sweetheart. No, that's that's not it. Or number two, he's easily distracted. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right? And so he better be right where Andrew's sitting. Thank you, Andrew. You, you will be my example here. Uh, so he better be right there so he can pay attention. Because my son gets easily distracted. And he needs to pay attention. Now, he, he's just like his dad in that way. So I'm easily distracted. You, you might remember not too long ago when we were in the gymnasium. And there was a bird flying around in the gymnasium. That was the hardest sermon I ever preached. I was like, we, we can just end this thing right now because I've got like ADD and this thing is not going to allow me to get another word out. And it was chirping and flying all over the place. Now, now, my son is like that. He can be easily distracted from this thing to this thing to this thing. But when school, when we want to partner with the teachers and we want to lead our children in their education, we, we want to make sure that he's focused focused on what matters most because these formative years of learning are so important for him, so important for all of our children. And I want to bring us around to that as a church because one of the greatest dangers that we could have as a church is we are distracted from what matters most. We're distracted from what ultimately counts and that our whole lives are arranged differently that Christ being greater isn't seen or known, or heard, or demonstrated. And this is what happened in the church that was written to in Hebrews. That they were distracted. That they had lost focus from what had mattered most. When you read the book of Hebrews, you see little hints and glimpses of that. In Hebrews 2, 1, it says, We must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we... Drift away from it. The greatest danger that we face as Christians is that we would leave the God that we love. And and listen to me when I say it doesn't happen all in one moment. What slowly and subtly happens is we begin to drift further and further and further and further away from what matters most. And so when I come here today and each and every Sunday, my plea is that we would return to the God that we love. You know the hymn, Come Thou Fount, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. That the heart of prayer for us would be, here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for Thy courts above. That we would be lock step in line with who God is And what he has done for us. And how does the author of Hebrews implore the church to come back to this God that they love? And it's real simple. He exalts Jesus Christ. Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. And and, and so you, you have a church that's going adrift. And for good reason, by the way. The the part of the reason why this church is going adrift is because the church is believed. Now, we don't know a lot about who the author of Hebrews wrote to. In fact, we don't even know who the who, uh, the author of Hebrews is. That's a mystery for us today. But here we have the canon of Scripture, the Word of God, and we are reading from somebody who we don't know who wrote it. I think that's fascinating in and of itself, and it is in the Word of God. I think you'll find with me the reason why it's here is because there is nothing that should not be in this book that's there. I mean, it is all so in line with the Scriptures and authoritative. And so we read the authoritative Word of God, and we also realize that the audience with whom he was writing to was very knowledgeable of the Jewish customs, In fact, the author used the Old Testament very much so to point to the greatness of Jesus Christ. And so it leads us to believe that the audience was likely a group of Jewish Christians. Jews who had been converted to Christ that had never seen Jesus Christ but yet believed in Him and began to follow after Him. But the going got tough. They were persecuted for their faith. They were maligned for their faith. You see hints in the book where there was imprisonment, even the shedding of blood, that their faith was beginning to cost them something. And the author of Hebrews is saying, while your faith is costly, it's the best thing that you have. Do not leave it because Jesus is greater. He's greater. He is better. And there's a man whose name is William Lane, speaking of the audience of Hebrews. He says, Hebrews was written to a group of Jewish Christians whose world was falling apart. So, so maybe you're here today and you've felt your world fall apart in different ways. Maybe you're here today and you've been adrift for quite some time. Maybe you've been adrift in the church or maybe you've been adrift out of the church. Well, let me tell you, welcome to Crosspoint because drifters are welcome here. It is so easy for us to drift and not realize it, but I want to say that we are a church that welcomes the wanderers. We welcome the people that have been adrift, but here's the the deal with that. We call one another back, back to what matters most in life, and that is what the author of Hebrews is doing, and he has done this through the spoken word of God. We were in the car the other day and driving home, and my son asked me, Dad, how do we know that God exists? How do we know that God exists? And then I preached in my sermon for this Sunday. It was a great practice. I only had five minutes of their attention span, but that was okay. How do we know that God exists? Well, the author of Hebrews tells us this because God has spoken. We have a God who has spoken to us. Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. We have the word of God that has been spoken to us, and when God speaks the word his word to us, it means that he wants us to know him. There's something intimate about that. We don't have a God who has just kind of set the world in motion and created some kind of big clock and says, as soon as this clock runs out, it's all over. No, you have a God who is active in his creation. In fact, when I told my son how we know that God exists, I said, Camden, look around you. Look at the trees. I said, you know those bright green lizards that you like to catch because they're so cool looking? God reveals himself to you through that. Look, look at the mountains that we, when we went on vacation and we were able to see the beauty of the oceans. God has revealed himself in creation. When we look in amazement at creation, we shouldn't just look in amazement at what God created, but the God who created it. It should point to us to a greater reality that God exists and he is showing himself to me. Psalm 19.1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Romans 1.19 and 20 says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So when someone says to us that they can't know God because God has not revealed himself to us, we can point to the majesty of creation and say, God can be known. God wants to be known. And he has already shown you. And he's already shown us through his spoken word. The word of God by the prophets. God used Moses. God used Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, David and he has given us his word to reveal to us his will and his ways so that we can know him and relate to him and respond to him and and if you read the bible the book of Genesis is a narrative meaning it's a story and it's a story so simple that my six-year-old can understand it it's it's God created the heavens and the earth and God created man and woman and he said it's good And you have not only the the book of Genesis, but you you have the poetry of the Psalms. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you should care for him? And you have the romance, the love song, of song of Solomon, I am my beloved's and he is mine. And you have the visions and dreams from the prophets like Ezekiel and Daniel declaring, thus saith the Lord. And you have Jeremiah, And Nehemiah and Ezra calling the people of Israel back and back and back again so that they might worship this one who matters most. It is the word of God. God has spoken past. And today God is still speaking. And how is God speaking to us? Well, it says here in verse 2, But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, By his son. He has sent his son. Now, I almost didn't prepare this sermon this past weekend uh, because the world was supposed to end yesterday. The last days, right? It was supposed to end yesterday. And I was like, man, I better get this sermon together. Just kidding. I, I did have the sermon ready to go. But the famous, you know, thing that happened this weekend is the Christian numerologist said that the world was going to end yesterday. And you'll have lots of people say that we're living in the last days. And actually, the author of Hebrews says that. We are living in the last days. And according to the Bible, there's only two time periods. There's before the last days, the days past. And there are the days present, which are the last days. Those are the days after Christ. After Christ came, we are living in a new era, the last days. And in the last days, Jesus has spoken to us God's word and God has appointed Jesus Christ to be the spoken Word of God. If it, it, in John 1, 1 through 1-3, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him, not anything made that was made. Verse 114, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Do you want to hear God speaking to you? You can hear God speaking to you by looking at the face of God through the face of Jesus Christ. God has spoken to us by His Son. This means that there's no greater revelation of God then, anything this world can offer, there's no greater late revelation of God than His Son, Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. If you want to see God, you see Him in Christ. If you want to know God's will for your life, you look and after and follow Jesus Christ, and you see that the image of Jesus Christ is the image that God is changing us into. And that we look to God and we behold him in Jesus Christ. Whom he appointed as heir of all things through whom he also created the world. So I want to talk a little bit about some of the words that, that the author brings into play here. He says that Jesus is the heir. It means that Jesus is the one who inherits everything that belongs to God. Just like I have a family, and one day those family that family will have everything that belongs to me, however meager that might be, Jesus has everything that belongs to God, and God is the owner of all things. And so Jesus is the heir of all things. He's the one whom God appointed. All things belong to him. That's why Jesus says that no one comes to the Father but by me. So if you want to know the Father, God the Father, you have to know God the Father through the Son because this is the way that God has appointed it. This is the way that God has ordained it. That you would come to know Him by knowing Him through God the Son. And I would argue that there's no other way you can know God the Father. We can't know God the Father unless we know God the Son because God the Son reveals to us His Father's nature and character telling us what God is like and why God is worthy of our worship because Jesus himself is the one who is worthy of our worship because Jesus himself is God. He is the creator of all things. He is the one through whom the world was created. Jesus Christ has always been present. Jesus Christ wasn't just present through the incarnation. But Jesus was present in all of creation. He is the uncreated one. He is the begotten son of God. I think it's absolutely fascinating when you think about creation. And how creation reveals the splendor and majesty of God. An atheist author whose name is Stephen Hawking. Writes this about our galaxy. He says our galaxy is an average-sized spiral galaxy that looks like a swirl in a pastry roll that's over thousand light, 100,000 light-years across and 600 trillion miles. We know that our galaxy is one of some 100,000 million that can be seen using modern telescopes, each galaxy itself containing 100 million stars. And that's all that we just know today. Well, and one of the things that we realize is the galaxy is continually expanding and expanding and expanding. And so Jesus' creation work has continued from the beginning until now. And that he is continuing to move and create and work in very powerful ways. And when you look up in the stars and you see the vast amount and, and, and so much so is probably one of what you can absolutely see, the rest of it you can't see. The stars, they are so innumerable, they're like the sand on the seashore. Jesus is the creator. Jesus is the image of God. He is the image of God. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of His nature. Colossians 1 says he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation for by him all things were created things in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities all things were created by him and for him and he is before all things and in him all things hold together and guess what he's the head of the body of the church the firstborn from among the dead so that in all things he might be supreme or preeminent for God was pleased that all his fullness should dwell in him And through him to reconcile to himself all things. He is the image of God. He reveals to us the majesty and the mystery of who God is. It says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is the sustainer. There's been a lot of talk about North Korea. And you have this radical psychotic dictator in North Korea who has the means of creating World War III. You wonder why that hasn't happened yet. Because you put the wrong guy behind the button and the whole world could fall apart, couldn't it? I would argue that the reason that that hasn't happened yet is because Christ is our sustainer. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. means that everything he is in control of, every single thing, And if Jesus ceased to uphold the universe by the word of his power, if he ceased his active sustaining of the world, we would be vaporized. There would be nothing. But Jesus now is holding all things together. From the galaxies to your blood cells and bone cells and brain cells, he is holding all things together in your life. He is our sustainer. And he is also the ruler of the hearts of men. Uh, There's there's this point in in Hebrews where you see the, the cosmos and how Jesus is the ruler of the cosmos. And right here, so intimately, you see that Jesus is the ruler of the hearts of men. There is no greater reason that God became flesh than to be the ruler of your life. The reason why Jesus Christ left the throne of heaven to become a man and dwell among us is for this very reason to make purifications for your sins. He is the purifier. This is where Jesus becomes Lord of our lives right here. You can acknowledge that there's this eternal power that's holding the world together. You can acknowledge that Jesus was even behind the creation of the the world. But, But listen, did Jesus Christ enter into your broken mess and begin to reconcile you? Because this is the word that the author wants us to know sin. Sin is impure. Sin is not natural. Sin is not right. Sin is us declaring rebellion against God. Listen, sin's not just the bad things that you do, sin is a heart that rejects the Lord as our savior and leader in all of our lives. In the garden of Eden, Adam and Eve's, their problem wasn't simply that they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, not just that action, but it was a heart that said, I don't want what God says is best for me. And in that sin, In that sin, we have declared rebellion against God. We have declared that we are not his friend but his enemy because we don't want his rule. And the good king, what's the good king to do? The good king came down from his throne. And as the author of Hebrews says a little later on, he became a brother. He became a brother. He took on flesh, becoming like us. Knowing our temptations knowing our difficulties, knowing our struggles, knowing even our human nature, and He was yet without sin, which made Him the perfect sacrifice. One of the things that the book of Hebrews is going to do is it's going to explain to us the Old Testament sacrificial system. And in the Old Testament sacrificial system, purification would not not happen one time, but would have to happen all the time. Here's why. Because if you're human, you probably understand this. Like, the sin problem continues. Even if you know Christ and have come to Christ and God has done this huge work in your life, you have to admit that you're still broken and in need of His grace. And so, what you would do in the Old Testament as a reminder of the fact that you don't have it all together and still don't have it all together is you would have to keep on offering sacrifices every year. And so, the next year would be a reminder that, that still the sin problem is still there. And there's still issues that I have to deal with that aren't done. They're not dealt with yet. And so, you have to aff- offer more sacrifices. And the priest, the priest would go, go into the, 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 Uh, tabernacle the tent of meeting and they would literally have bells on their ankles to let the people who were outside of the holiest of holies know if those bells stop ringing then you got to drag him out by a rope because he's dead because that place was so holy no one could enter into it and even the priest had to go through a ritual and confession before entering that place but jesus was the sufficient priest Jesus didn't come and have to offer sacrifices for himself. The high priests did in those days. The priests that were there, they had to offer sacrifices first for themselves and then for the people. But Jesus, no, he came not offering any sacrifices for himself because he was without sin. And so Jesus could offer himself as the once and for all sacrifice. The greatest sacrifice, making purification for sin once and for all. And that's the beauty of the gospel, is that there is a one-and-done deal in Christ Jesus. And that you don't have to be good enough, and you don't have to try hard enough, and you don't have to do this thing very ritualistically over and over and over again, because Jesus says, it is finished. And after he did it, what did he do? He sat down. (sighs) Oh. The priest could never sit down because the work was never done. It was always a bloody, gruesome mess. And Jesus, yes, there was a bloody, gruesome mess on the cross because that's what was required for our sin. That should have been us on that cross, by the way. That's what we deserve. He took what we deserved. And guess what? He gave us what only He deserves. Remember I said Jesus is the heir of God? We're His heirs. Everything that belongs to Jesus, he gives to us. He gives to us through the purification that he made on the cross of Christ. And friends, that's the point of which the author wants to bring the church back. He says, your greatest problem isn't that you might be imprisoned. Your greatest problem isn't that there might be shedding of your blood. Your greatest problem is your sin, and it's been dealt with once and for all in the person of Jesus Christ. Now follow him and cling to him closely and never leave him, because he will never leave you. That's good news today, and you know why? Because it means that God doesn't hold a grudge. (laughs) Sometimes I live as if God's holding a grudge. God, why are you mad at me? Why did I get a flat tire today? Last week I had to change the, the, the window deal went up and down. That's why you should just get the, the manual roll up and roll down windows. Because you have to put $300 into just a broken window. And I thought, man, God, what did I do to deserve this? Anybody ever been there before that, today? Like, why did I have to spend $300? God's not holding those grudges. He's not holding those grudges. You don't have to look at your life and, and think that somehow God is punishing you because God has punished Jesus in your place. He's put your sins upon him. But Jesus Christ has given us the freedom that only he deserves. God loves us in Christ Jesus, meaning God loves us like Christ Jesus as if we have no sin because we were criminals against God. But God who made a way, made a way through Jesus Christ. And that's why the Bible tells us that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God the Father because he continues to execute the judgment of God by his grace. There's two ways to come before Jesus. You can come to Jesus Christ in your own strength. You can come to Jesus Christ on your own merit you can come to Jesus Christ by offering your merit badges and you can offer your resume and say, God, look, I deserve it. And do you know what you're going to get? You're going to get the wrath of God. If you come to God on your own strength, you will get the wrath of God deserving the just penalty of your sin, which is hell. But if you come to Christ by grace that says, I am broken in need of a Savior. Like Isaiah says, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. If you come to him by your grace, by his grace, he accepts you as much as he accepts Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ made purification for your sins and is now ruler of all. So that means that Jesus Christ is our perfect priest, Offering sacrifice for our sins. And as we we'll read in the book of Hebrews more what this looks like. The Old Testament becomes alive to us through what the author wrote here. And that he sat at the right hand of God It means that Jesus is ruler of all. And that he's now Lord of our lives. Why would we live any other way than to follow after him? It means that we are obedient to this king who laid down his life and now demands our hearts, but he woos us by his love. He doesn't come with a heavy hand and a strong fist. Author William Barclay says that the glory of God is not the glory of shattering power, but the glory of suffering love. The radiance of the glory of God, the sun's rays that shine, that show us, isn't the glory of God's creation power but the glory of God's suffering love on that tree where Jesus Christ died. Colossians 2, 13-15 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, Nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. And he put them to open shame. By triumphing over them in him. Jesus shows us through what he's done that he is greater. And he is worthy. He is worthy of our hearts and lives. And the question that I have for you is what occupies the place of greatness in your life? What occupies the place of being greater in your life? And, and, and the way you should answer this question is by saying, have I lost focus? Where's my focus? Where's my heart consumed with? Is it on the, the things of life that really don't matter ultimately in the scheme of things? Or is it on Jesus Christ who makes everything in life matter? I'm not saying that these other things don't matter. I'm saying that they really do matter. But they will matter more when they come and they're used to lift up and exalt the name of Jesus. That all your time and effort and resources would be given to that. So our response today is that we would believe, have faith in who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. That, That we would repent. That simply means that we would be brought back. That we would come back to the foot of the cross to live for and follow him. And that we would obey. And we would say, God, my life belongs to you. Here I am. Help me do your will. Let's pray. God, I thank you. Thank you that now we can walk in the steadfast mercy of Jesus Christ. That You are greater. That You are mighty. And that, God, you've made a way for us. That you stepped into our brokenness, God, and you brought reconciliation. That you took the mess of our lives, God, and you made it new, and you made it a masterpiece of mercy. And that, God, your your sacrifice is one that is full and final. And today we can rest in that. We don't have to try harder or do more. But, God, we have to have hearts that believe. Lord, make our hearts believe. Help us believe in you. Help us walk in you. Help us worship you. Because God, we confess that Jesus is greater. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Would you stand now with me? We're going to take communion. When you take communion, you take the bread and you dip it in the cup. And you say that the Savior has made purifications for my sins. And it's simply a confession that he is greater. And we'll do this by filing down the aisles and going to the communion table that's closest to you. And we are reminded as God's church that Jesus Christ did not just purchase us as individuals, but as a body. As a body that he is redeeming, renewing, and restoring in Christ's name. So I'll invite our servers up as we take communion and we worship God with our voices in singing these songs.